This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. What a week. I don't know how to sum it up uh, when it comes to all the topics of foreign election interference. Um, This is not a one-week topic either. Clearly, the reporting, uh, both from the excellent Sam Cooper and Mackenzie Gray from Global, um, Robert Fife from the Globe and Mail, I, I think we could make the case that they've on horseback uh, led the charge in terms of this investigation. Now what we find, CSIS is investigating who leaked information of China's election interference. I don't blame them for that. Um, There is a whistleblower within CSIS that may not be necessarily satisfied um, with, uh, with Prime Minister Trudeau, but I don't think that doesn't make what's been revealed any less accurate or any less, you know, believable or acceptable. In fact, It makes much of what we're talking about unacceptable. Did the government ignore warnings of China's influence that they can't directly? This this wasn't just rumor and innuendo. This is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. They stand pretty uniquely with what the job is, what they do, and what they're tasked with. And they went right to the government and said, China's influencing the elections. And they named specific candidates in specific writings. And... Is there any other way to view this other than the government said, we're good with it? I, I don't have another way. I don't have another way. Trudeau tells CSIS basically, yeah, 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 that that candidate is is right in the pocket of the Chinese Communist Party and, and, and Beijing, but we're good. So thanks for the warning. We're going to do what we do. I, I don't know how else to view it besides that. Han Dong in Don Valley North is deemed as a winning affiliate in China's election interference networks. Those are CSIS words, not mine, not any of the reporters. And you heard the Trudeau quote on Monday. We played it for you on Tuesday. In a free democracy, it is not up to unelected security officials to dictate to political parties who can and cannot run. He's right, but no one did that and no one is suggesting that they did do that. So where all this goes is going to be really interesting. Um, There's a lot to say that's good about what Justin Trudeau's accomplished if you're a member of the Liberal Party. He really did bring a, we're seeing this in Ontario this weekend, and that has to be the hope for the Ontario Liberals, which we'll talk about a bit later on in the show. There has to be a hope that someone, a savior, can come down or come from another level of government, the federal Trudeaus, municipal government, being a mayor, Step into the Ontario Liberal Party and have a game plan. You know how a quarterback steps into a huddle and he could be 22 years old and he's playing with 35 year olds and 30 year olds and 28 year olds going, what's this dumb rookie? No, but he commands the room. He commands the huddle and you believe in him and you put your faith in him and you do the the trust tree thing. Okay, the trust fall. You're willing to do that for him. The Ontario Liberals don't have that, but I would note Justin Trudeau became that for the federal liberals. He absolutely did. He saved a party basically on life support. Thanks to Michael Ignatieff's run, Stefan Dion's run, um, the run obviously before of Chrétien and Martin. That party was going to get its ass kicked in election after election until Justin Trudeau came along. You can't, you can't make an argument otherwise. But it doesn't excuse how ticked off many liberals are with this. A nonpartisan inquiry is probably what needs to happen here. But someone brought up something yesterday that I thought was really interesting. How much does a public inquiry hurt the process of who we are in Canada? 
How much of it exposes what CSIS does on a regular basis? I don't necessarily want that for all to see. I don't think it's great to have us watching and deeming um, and judging the in, the inner operations of our of basically our best spies and the people in charge of protecting us. Yesterday from CSIS, David Vigneault testified and uh, made these comments to uh, to the committee that is listening and looking into Chinese election interference. I have had uh, many opportunities to brief the prime minister, cabinet and different ministers on the subject of national security, including specifically on foreign interference. Now, there's interna- internal mechanisms of, of the system for members of the service to express their frustrations about their work in the government, um, but not with the prime minister's office specifically. So I don't want to lose the lens here. I think I think there needs to be a focus on CSIS to some extent as to what they knew, when they knew it. And I don't blame CSIS to go, who's leaking stuff? Who's talking about this to members of the media? That's fine. That's fine. They should look into that. It doesn't change what the prime minister did. And when he did it, not in the least. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, a little later on in the morning. And yeah, the Ontario Liberal uh, 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 annual general meeting happens this weekend as well. And we'll touch on that. 612, let's bring in uh, Shiba Siddiqui joining us on Toronto Today, our uh, producer. And uh, I hate stories like this. You know what an emotional toll a story like this takes on me. Nordstrom uh, closes all Canadian stores out of nowhere cutting 2,500 jobs. And I can't tell. Like, I've shopped at Nordstrom, but I also, it's pricey. I probably bought four shirts there. Maybe I'm part of the problem. Um, They've been here in Canada, Sheba, since 2012. But I also wonder how much of it was the direction retail was headed before the pandemic. How How much of it's the pandemic going? Well, though it's really known for men's shirts, and I'm sure some women's outfits as well, not a lot of men are demanding $150, $200 shirts in the last three years. We're just not. We're not. No, no. Well, I think it goes all around for a lot of people. I mean, we're coming out of a really tough time financially, emotionally. And it's sad to see this. There's six Nordstrom stores and seven Nordstrom rack stores across Canada that they announced yesterday are going to be closed by late June. But Nordstrom.ca is actually already in operational right now. That was as of last night. And the sad part is, yes, 2,500 jobs are going to be gone. That's what they're cutting uh, and there are a lot of people who are mourning it, like you. And then there are others who are thinking, well, Eaton Center, for example, that's a huge space. What's going to take over that space? So yeah, it's an anchor at Eaton Center, things. isn't it? It's it's it did it, it I, is. did it basically take over where Eaton's was? I'm trying to picture it. I haven't been in Eaton Center in long enough. I think it did, right, Gordon? Yeah, I believe um, it yeah. was because yes. the bay's at one end and bay's, Nordstrom's yeah. is at the other. Bay's in a whole other story. You go across the walkway. Yes, yeah, to get to the bay. Yeah, on the other side of the street. Yeah. So I, a lot of people I saw online. A lot of people were were tweeting and messaging and saying. Now what am I going to have to do? What am I going to have to cut through to get to the other side of the mall? So they often mm. use Nordstrom as the cut through. Um, but people are suggesting Dollarama, Zell, a giant, enormous Dollarama, Zellers, Giant Tiger, Simons. Uh, and then someone even suggested Arby's. They, as like, their they like their roast beef. Yes. Um, one thing that people are very upset about on top of Nordstrom closing is that apparently these are the cleanest bathrooms around in and around the Eaton Center. So this is a little secret that people do. Instead of using the mall bathrooms, they go to the Nordstrom and uh, they're spotless and it's a great place to just take a little break for the other day if you need to and those won't be there accessible to them anymore. Get away from your little kids. Leave them with your uh, your partner or your spouse. Just spend four minutes sitting down in the bathroom and going, oh, wh- how did this... 
How did this become my life? The, the, well, listen, this is a big deal for people who I hate public bathrooms. So in yeah, most malls, I kind of know where the best bathroom is to use. I just think like Yorkdale. Yorkdale is uh, restoration hardware, hands down. Oh, is it? <laughs> I'm giving away my little secret. <laughs> Don't, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Amazing. And now it'll become it's really popular spotless. as of 11 a.m. Uh, this morning. There'll be lineups. <laughs> it just, I think people are really. I, I think some people are born to do. I think there's people born to be politicians, born to be doctors. Um, I always wanted to do this. I think there's people born to do retail. I think there's people that are just so naturally good at it and they they serve so well. And I feel there's got to be a, a chunk of those people in the 2500 who are seeing a way of life end in terms of retail. Like maybe another store will take them if they've got a great record and a long history and loyalty and whatnot. Yeah. But I hate the direction Have this is going. Have you ever worked retail? Yeah. yeah. Not clothing, but in music retail I did at two different Sort of steedy oh, stores yes. in the mid '90s, right? Um, I've never had a job. Yeah, I think waiting tables and having those jobs were tremendous, like training grounds for just just doing everything Absolutely. else. Oh, I worked in many retail stores in the Eaton Center, and you're right; I've learned so much through it. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news today's talk six forty Toronto. I got a story about morals, about ethics, um, but I wonder who you deem the least ethical out of uh, what's happening in the United Kingdom. I don't know that this is. Um, I think this is probably relatable to a lot of people because. If you tell somebody something in confidence, you expect it to stay in confidence. You're well aware, especially when you utilize your phone, I think, what's a private conversation and what's something you should share. You can also imagine, I've done this for 26 years, more than um, a, a few times, but not that many. Um, I, I have accidentally, what I'd say is, revealed a conversation probably that I had in my house or that I had with a friend and, someone's, and, and that friend or... That person in my house, namely uh, Mrs. Brady, says, don't do that. Don't talk. And, and I'm never meaning to do it. I'm never meaning to talk about something on the air. And, but you sometimes are forgetting. What did I say on the air? And what did I say at home? Did that person tell me something that I was that they wanted out there or did they not? I'm super careful with that stuff. And you end up, you know, earning trust and. I think you're explicit as opposed to implicit, um, rather implicit as opposed to explicit, as opposed to, you know, what's a private conversation and what is it? So yesterday it gets put out there that a journalist named Isabel Oakshot, who works for Talk TV, um, she's the assignment editor and is on air uh, as well, leaked out, and she admits doing this, conversations she had with government officials in the United Kingdom during covid that's basically what she's done here. She says she makes no apology whatsoever, says it's in the national interest, and says it's basically because they were betraying us during COVID. I have no problem betraying Matt Hancock, um, which is which was the health secretary at the time who was under a lot of heat, a lot of pressure. And you remember what's happened in the UK. There were people, there were government officials having parties. Hancock had an affair. Does that sound familiar to people in Toronto who follow municipal politics? Now it does, based on three weeks ago. So um, she defended the leaks of all these WhatsApp and text conversations on television yesterday. I think Matt Hancock himself has made some pretty serious mistakes. But I'm very clear that I really, in an ideal world, do not want to get into a public slanging match with Matt Hancock. If he wants to sink to those levels, uh, then I will leave that to him. Because this, for once, 
Matt, and may I address this directly to you, it's not about you. I know you think it's all about you, but it isn't. It is about the entire nation that suffered as a result of flawed policies. It's much bigger than you on this occasion. Sorry to break it to you. It's a really interesting scenario that's developing here. And, I, you know, I never want to sit here because uh, I think you've you've had enough going. Here's what we should have done in this month and here's what we should have done in that month. But I think the um, I'll use the word again, implicit trust between a journalist and a government official. I think that happens all the time. Um, I have politicians tell me things. I tell them things. And thus far, I can honestly say, like with my hand in the air, uh, swear to God, hope to die. I've never burned anybody. I've never burned anybody. When I say you're anonymous, when I I ask, can I say this? Um, I sleep really well at night knowing that, that I've got ethics about it. And I think they do also. I hope so anyway, but you never know. You never know. Some people um, approach things just a little bit differently. What is happening now as well is you're seeing some of these messages. I'll give you an example of what's transpiring today is there are messages where uh, people in hotel quarantine are being mocked by government officials. Matt Hancock is, is in these texts as well. And the Telegraph newspaper, very ethical. This isn't some trashy tabloid. The Telegraph's publishing these conversations between uh, Matt Hancock and another government official named Simon Case, joking about rich travelers being, quote, locked up in what they describe as, quote, shoebox hotel rooms. It's terrible. That's terrible. Boris Johnson, then the prime minister, talking about a 10,000 pound fine on two people as superb. So there are a slew of revelations coming out. And the journalist that I mentioned, Ms. Oakshot, is letting all this out of the bag now to basically say, I I have to hold the government accountable. They're not doing it themselves. She says she gave them every opportunity. Hold an inquiry. Talk about what you got wrong. It, It hasn't transpired here. And I bet you there's politicians in this country, in this province, in the city of Toronto that are worried they're the next Matt Hancock. They're worried that somebody is going to leak on them. And I don't, I don't have an opinion as to whether it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you that it's happening. Here's Joanne Oakshot, uh, Joanne Oakshot defending herself today on uh, BBC. I knew that I would take a bit of a knock over this, uh, but this is about far more than my reputation and far more than, frankly, Matt Hancock's reputation. As a journalist, I'm not here to protect or save the blushes of politicians, and I don't mind a bit of a rocky ride if it means that really important truths about events that affected every single one of us get out into the public domain. Now, we can talk about the public inquiry and politicians can try to say, well, the right and proper place for all this is in due process in the public inquiry. Well, fine. In that case, let's have a public inquiry that concludes, as Sakir Starmer has asked for, by the end of this year. I'm not satisfied by warm words saying that this inquiry will have all the resources it needs, et cetera, et cetera. What it needs is a deadline, and it doesn't have that. So, look, in the absence of that, I think it's incumbent on those of us that have extremely revelatory material about what really happened to get it out there. So that's her saying they're not doing it themselves. They're not being transparent. They're not being honest. Let me do it for them to, to, do, to help the greater good of society the next time this comes round. 
Not necessarily to hold people accountable for what happened, although that's not the worst idea on the planet. But um, but again, this is a morals ethics issue as much as it is. Well, talking about covid from three years ago, it's important to point out Matt Hancock, forget his personal life. I don't give a rip about his personal life, um, but Matt Hancock it, uh, still took a lot of messages that I'm sure other people assumed were, were private and he had shared them with the journalist. I think that's important to note. Here's a message that he wrote about what Boris Johnson shared with him. Now, this is three months into the pandemic. I want you to remember where we all were mentally and emotionally in June of 2020. He wrote, Matt, as I read this chart, an 80-year-old COVID patient has a 6% chance of dying. And if you were under 35, your chances are negligible. If I were an 80-year-old and I was told the choice was between destroying the economy and risking my exposure to a disease I had a 94% chance surviving, I know what I would prefer. And that seems to me to be how anybody over 70 was telling me those things in, in June of 2020 and certainly afterwards. They didn't want you know their grandkids living by the same rules they were. They knew that they, if I was 80 years old, I would have locked down like a bandit. You never, you wouldn't have seen me for all of 2020. I wouldn't have gone anywhere if I'm 80 years old. But I would never have insisted that 11-year-olds do that. And never would have assisted university students do that. Never, 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 never. And I think it's also really noteworthy to point out that it, I think there's some games that were happening between sources and journalists. I'm sure when a, when a Peter Uni says, hey, I'll give you this information if you write this, I'm willing to wager that those kind of things were happening a fair bit. Should they be exposed? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if they are in the next couple of years. I wouldn't be surprised at all. So we can figure out how not to do the wrong things that we did the last three years. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Things, I wouldn't say they're calm at Queen's Park. They're far from it. But obviously what happened with the federal government this week and what may happen next week um, in uh, Parliament in Ottawa takes a little bit of uh, the lens of focus away. This weekend, it's all about the annual general meeting, the AGM, for the Ontario Liberal Party. Now, important to clarify, uh, they're not going to pick a leader this weekend. This isn't a convention. This is an annual meeting, and they've got a lot of runway to pick that leader. We've had discussions uh, before with our next guest about who that leader will be, who some of the candidates are. She's a great follow on Twitter and uh, runs a Substack, uh, QP, uh, Queen's Park Observer. She is tr- Sabrina Nanji. It's great to have you on. How are you doing? Hi, Greg. It says everything about the Ontario Liberal Party that a massive snowstorm uh, is going to happen in the late afternoon today on their first night of their of their annual general meeting. Why not a hurricane? Why not a tsunami? Right. Given how the last two elections have gone. Yeah, I mean, despite this winter storm warning we've got, um, you know, about 1500 card carrying liberals are expected to descend on Hamilton. Um, And it's uh, probably the most consequential event that they've had. We know that the liberals have pretty much been decimated in Ontario the last two elections, not even getting recognized party status in the House. Um, but but if you talk to any liberal, they're really excited. They're feeling like this is, you know, the beginning of their comeback. But uh, it's it's very early stages. And as you mentioned, you know, we're not going to get um, too many specifics on the leadership contest, which is going to be the big event. But sort of the details about how that leader is going to be chosen, which is going to be really significant, is going to be figured out uh, uh, this weekend. And so what everyone is going to be watching for is whether the party decides to 
changed their delegated convention. That's um, it's an antiquated system. You know, the Ontario Liberal Party is the only party that still has it. And so it, it's um, it is more entertaining, but a lot of people say it's less democratic. It's basically where certain delegates are chosen from each ridings and they get to vote for the leader. Um, there's now a constitutional amendment that's going to be decided this weekend on whether to change that to a one member, one vote system, which is exactly what it sounds like. You know, you, you're a liberal member, you get to vote mm -hmm. for the leader directly. A lot of people are saying that's more democratic, um, but it does require 66% of liberals that will be there this weekend to support it. Um, and we do know that a majority of liberals support it, but it's never been that high. So I think that in particular is going to be a, a deal breaker for some of these potential liberal leadership candidates um, mm. to decide, you know, whether they want to actually formally jump into the race or not. When I see many of them talk, whether it's uh, people that, that may want the Ontario uh, liberal job or former liberals, I think they now get it how um, they were very much abandoned by the electorate. I, I think there's less of a um, a shock factor. And, and I don't know if the shock factor was there going into the pandemic when they chose Stephen Del Duca as leader, the entire election campaign last year where where the platform just didn't it just didn't resonate. Um, but I, I think there's now a sense of reality, just how much work there really is to do for the party. That's right. You know, um, there's they've, they've got their work cut out for them. 2026 is a long ways away, but they're going to need this time um, uh, to, you know, build back, as the liberals like mm -hmm. to say. I mean, there's so many aspects. There's fundraising. I don't know who wants to pay, you know, hundreds of dollars to go rub elbows with, you know, a, a leaderless party right now. And so I think that's going to be um, top of mind for a lot of liberals. You know, how do they kind of build their cash arsenal? Because, of course, election campaigns cost money and they're going to have to put up a competitive effort against the NDP who have, you know, brought their their leader in earlier than expected, Marit Stiles, uh, who, who wasn't facing any competition, of course, but she's she's kind of locked in already. And she now um, has been touring the province, you know, uh, introducing herself to people. She's going to have a leg up on whoever becomes the liberal leader, um, at least in that sense. And, and we do know that, you know, it's not just in Ontario, it's not just the liberals versus the conservatives or the NDP versus the conservative government. It's it's sort of the NDP and the liberals against each other too, because uh, they they uh, they tend to go back and forth on territory um, that's that can you know get you more seats in the house. They are maybe more similar in some policy aspects. We kind of saw that in 2022, um, and so this is uh, this is kind of the beginning of you know pre-election. Um, drama. And of course, you know, 20, like I said, 2026 is a far ways away. But yeah. for, for us at Queen's Park, it feels like we're always in the thick of it. Yeah, I'd say I'd say that's accurate. I didn't think Mike Schreiner was, was going to run and, and he didn't. I don't think Bonnie Crombie's going to run. Um, and I don't know that she will or won't. Um, do you think Bonnie Crombie wants to be the liberal leader? I think she's got a great scenario. Um, I don't I don't see her doing it. Do you? I think Bonnie can make a better case than Mike Schreiner, um, who who decided he's going to stick around with the Greens. But, you know, Bonnie Crombie is going to be featured at um, a hospitality suite uh, tonight. You know, those are kind of these schmoozing events uh, that, that go on, you know, get to know these people that are running for to be party leaders type of events. And so Bonnie is going to be featured there. Now, she says 
She's strictly there to talk about, you know, mayoral issues. She's going to be pumping up Mississauga, which she's very good at. But there is this growing draft Bonnie movement in the party now. And, and I do think she would be a, a great opponent um, for Doug Ford and someone who could help galvanize and, and give fresh blood to the liberals, which they desperately need. You know, she represents a 905 area right now as mayor. That that region can make or break you uh, at Queens Park. You know, there's a lot of votes up for grabs there. And I, I think Bonnie um, would, would be a fair contender. She could help the liberals pick up where they need to there. She doesn't really have a lot of political baggage, um, you know, compared to some other folks, Yasser Nakvi, um, uh, for who's, you know, potentially considering running for, for liberal leader. Uh, you know, Stephen Del Duca was constantly tied to the win government and some of those unpopular decision makings. You know, Bonnie doesn't have to deal with that. Uh, she also is very good at getting under Doug Ford's skin. Um, we've already seen those two spar um, uh, over developer fees that the province scrapped for municipalities. You know, Bonnie has been leading the charge on that issue as chair of the big city mayors. And, and we saw Ford, you know, get visited visibly rattled. He basically told her, quit your whining. Um, and, and so I think she would make for a very good opponent to Ford and, and you know, position herself as premier in waiting. But for now, she says she, she's not saying no, which, you know, we've heard before, but it's still early days yet. Um, the Greenbelt controversy. It, it, I think the conservatives have done what they do. Um, um, they they've stayed away uh, mostly from microphones. I know Peter Bethlenfall be asked to present a budget, so he'll be, I'm sure, out and about in the next couple of weeks. That said, um, MPs have been hard to get a hold of, hard to get in front of microphones, and they've hoped that this has died down. Has Have they been successful in that strategy? I don't think so. I don't think this is going away anytime soon. We've we've seen Marit Stiles, you know, hammering the conservatives on this near daily in question period. Um, and, and there's still a lot of investigations. And, and I, I do think the NDP has done a good job of keeping this issue alive um, because there's still so many questions. So I don't think it's going away anytime soon. The ethics watchdog has his own investigation. The auditor general is looking into it. You know, the OPP um, has received complaints. They haven't really decided if they're going to, you know, uh, do their own investigation. But but this isn't going away for the Ford government by any means. Um, and we have seen, you know, Ford get rattled and kind of say, we need this for housing. Whereas, you know, there are these fresh reports coming out saying that the province did not have to tear up the green belt to, to meet its yeah. ambitious housing plan. And so I think, you know, because there are still so many holes in this, so many unanswered questions, it's not going away anytime soon. Sabrina Nanji is our guest. Uh, Queens Park Observer uh, is her Substack. It's a it's a great subscription. One more on this. And um, I think the liberals have have, a, like I said, a long uh, sort of launch pad to decide on a leader. But is the concept that this is going to happen later in the year? We had Nate Erskine Smith on who people will still talk about until uh, until they don't. Um, and, and he said, I, I think any leader is going to need at least two years to mobilize to get get the party in the right spot, get the proper candidates to run by fall of 25 if you're headed towards a spring 26 election. So he says he'd need two years as leader. He doesn't want this to drag into 2024. You spoke to him a week and a half ago. He would have said the same thing then. Yeah, Nate told me that that's potentially a deal breaker for him, you know, making it official, uh, his his bid for provincial leader, that if it was late 2024, even going into 2025, this leadership contest, he he might have second thoughts about jumping in the race, because as you said, th there's going to be a lot of, of groundwork uh, that needs to happen. And so there's no nothing set in stone yet. But what I'm hearing is that the race is going to happen in early 2024. Some of the timelines and, uh, you know, the system will be decided this weekend, but we're probably not 
going to get a specific date for the leadership contest until later on this year, this summer. And so a lot of people are speculating that it will happen at some point in 2024. I'm he- hearing earlier in the year, which Nate says is, is cool by him. But uh, at this point, everything is up in the air. And we obviously got a, a Hamilton Center by-election that's going to be really intriguing uh, 13 days from now. Sabrina, uh, enjoy. We'll be reading up for the coverage this weekend. And thanks, as always, for coming on our show. Thanks for having me. Sabrina Nanji, uh, QP Observer. Give that a, uh, a Google search and you'll get some phenomenal information uh, from Queen's Park. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. This TikTok story, I'm sensitive to this because when it comes to time limits, I think about being a kid and I think how much t- I wouldn't want to see a graph of how much TV I used to watch, but I'd maintain it was it was beneficial to me. It was news programs. It was Letterman. It was um, you know maybe it was it was sitcoms. Maybe it was dramas that gave me more of a worldly sense about it. Um, so I watched a ton of TV, but I think it was good TV. I absorbed a ton of pop culture, but I think it was beneficial pop culture. Clearly, there are parents, um, and the data bears this out that don't feel this way about the internet about social media, and it's understandable. TikTok has been described by some as the crack cocaine of algorithms. Incredibly addictive, incredibly dangerous. No matter what our parents tried to limit us to do, kids of the uh, the 80s and 90s who might be listening, um, there was never a more urgent conversation than the one here. So TikTok has limited, set a 60-minute daily screen time limit, but you know as a parent, when you set a limit, your kids will ask you to drop the limit or they'll work their own way around it. This is parenting. I'm happy to welcome on Paul Davis, an online safety and social media educator who joins us now on Toronto Today. Really admire your work, Paul. Thanks very much for making the time for our show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What's your initial read on when the 60-minute limit was announced? Do you go, well, this is progress, or do you say exactly what I said? Mm, people will work around this. The comment I made on my Facebook page, smoke and mirrors, that's all it is. And you look at the timing of when this came out. I mean, this could have come out a long time ago, but obviously the, with the political discourse occurring right now with TikTok, let's try and make some good news happen, and they threw this out there. Look, number one, I educate a lot of kids. They're smart, and they'll, they know the way around this already. They mm-hmm. set up a separate account. Now, let's say TikTok was smart enough, and I don't know if they are, but let's say they identify that a kid is creating a different account on the same device using the same IP address, and they say, you know what, we're going to block that. Well, there are a lot of old devices at home that they will use and create another account. There's also going to the Internet and typing in TikTok.com on a browser, logging in there, and creating another account over there. So <clears throat> smoke and mirrors, there's going to be a ton of ways around it. Is the, is, is, is the coverage of it a wake up, though, to parents saying, oh, well, you know, they spot it on the news or they hear us talking about it and they say it does need to be more of a we, we all procrastinate in life. And, and many of our procrastinations as parents is setting these defaults and online limits for our kids. That's the path that I take every night, which is parents stop being a friend start being a parent and learn when to say no. So if you allow your 13, 14, 15 year old child on TikTok, cause you know, for the record parents, you must be 13 years of age and older to have the platform. You need to discipline them to have it for a certain amount of time. And that involves parental guidance. It means we have to invest time with our kids to make sure it happens. Cause you can't, you can't blame a kid for their curiosity and their admiration of something because they're a kid, right? So it's our responsibility to guide them. When they're a certain age, and I've always said 15 years of age and older for TikTok, there could be some benefits, but still remember they're in a teenage um, time of their life and they're still curious and they're not going to adhere to time restrictions. So we need to invest our time 
with them. Now, there's third-party products that could actually restrict um, the time limit on any social media platform. We're not going to get into that, but there okay. are good platforms out there. My focus has always been parental involvement. And if we focus go- going down that path, these platforms at the right age don't have to be that negative or that toxic. Paul Davis is joining us, online safety and social media educator. There always was that perception, and I would argue I bought into this theory then, that the more restrictive a parent in many cases, the more the kid, the boy or girl would rebel. I saw it with my own eyes with drinking, drugs, um, teen sex. Like uh, the, the more restrictive a parent was, the more that person would act out. I don't know if I feel quite the same way about this, but parents, you just said it. We all walk that line because if we're if we're too authoritarian, we're worried the kids are going to bust out of their cages and become more wild than they already are about this stuff. And that's why I focus on relationships in my parent presentations. Restrictions are important up until what I've always said, end of grade eight. You need to put restrictions so there's no pornography coming to the home. Mm-hmm. There's no excess time usage of uh, social media. Well, they're supposed to be 13, but we know parents have broken those rules. Having said that, after 13, I, I keep communicating the importance of developing a healthy, transparent relationship with your teenager, meaning talk to them. So yes, you might have some restrictions, but continuous conversation and engagement is what's going to moderate how much time they're going to be on there, understanding, mm-hmm. communication. So it's not going to be authoritarian. It's going to be, look, I care about you. I want you to use these platforms, but you know what? Enough's enough. So let me, some simple rules, Greg. Number one, your phone will never make its way into your bedroom. So you're going to get a great night's sleep. So tell all your friends at 10 o'clock at night, you are done TikToking, you are done Snapchatting, you're done. And I'll talk to you tomorrow morning to get a good night's sleep. That, you know, most kids go to bed with their phones. But if we implement one simple rule and we don't say it's a hard rule, which it is, but it's because through communication that it's not going to seem that hard. Most kids will adapt and say, you know what, I get it, you're right. And when they understand it, they're more likely to make the change. I've always said this, Greg, kids don't like being told what to do. So my strategy with grade sevens to twelves is I define something technically how it works, and then I guide them based on it. And then they are more receptive to listening to that message because I didn't threaten them. I didn't scare them. There was no fear factor. And if you can apply that as a parent, you can change the whole landscape in your home. But I've said this on so many shows. Yeah. Parenting 101, Greg. Last one, and it might be the biggest question, and yep. I want you to turn your lens and, and your, uh, your your guns, if you will, towards the media. Is there anything we're doing wrong? Is there any kind of campaign that, that needs to be out there? And I ask that because, Paul, when I was a teenager, there was enough out there about um, drunk driving and, and what would happen to you that I didn't want to get caught doing it, so I didn't do it. Drugs, same thing. You'll get hooked. Your life will be... You, that egg commercial, right? Here's your scrambled egg. Here's your brain on drugs. And I'd make the case you were worried about getting somebody pregnant. You were worried about HIV and AIDS for a period of time. I don't see that with social media. And I almost want to because when it's parents just blah, 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 the kids tune out. Is there anything we can do? Always deliver facts and always deliver a balanced message. So listen, with this platform, and people say, Paul, you really dislike TikTok. You know what? <laughs> At the end of the day, I, I, I actually do until you're a certain age. And then, of course, I accept it because as adults, we can make mature decisions as to whatever we want to download and consume. But when we're delivering, we should deliver the facts. And yes, there's a lot of negativity surrounding this, but there's also positivity. And so if we can deliver a balanced approach while focusing on the concerns that we have, I think it'll open up mm. people's eyes. But... We have to focus on the issue at hand without politicizing it, without uh, fear-mongering. And parents should be able to process facts and then apply those facts applicably in their home. Paul, loved our chat. Thanks so much. Really, uh, really enjoyed it and have a great weekend.
You too. Thanks very much. Paul Davis, uh, online safety social media educator. It, it, it is that simple. As he's saying that, you can imagine me as a parent. I got a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old. They might, they might even be in the car hearing this right now. I'd love to sit them down Monday night at 6 o'clock, and you'd say, why don't you do it tonight? I, I don't, I don't want to deal with it tonight. And that's just exactly it. Monday at 6 o'clock, everybody's phones are in the hallway, four phones in one box, and they're there by, let's say, 11 o'clock every night. That seems reasonable. That seems fair. Could we all commit to that? Because I think you have to set an example. I look at my parents and I saw their mistakes. I'd watch my parents have an argument and go, oh, that's how it's done when you're an adult. You sort things out that way. They're still married after 55 years. Somewhere, somewhere along the way, I'm sure they couldn't stand the sight of each other. But they made it work. And parenting, it's a limited time. It's a finite amount of time. We get one life. We all get one life. We've realized that the last three years. We get one life to do what we want to do when we want to do. And we get one time to be a parent. But I don't know. I, 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 I'd I love to say that it, it'll be easy for me Monday night to tell the kids, this is what you're giving up. And they both have computers in their room. So, oy vey, right? 